Let's start with a prayer, if you would bow your heads with me. Father, thank you for the privilege of gathering here this morning to worship you. I pray that you'd be here with us by your Holy Spirit, that you would separate the wheat from the chaff in what I say, and that you would bring your message to your people for your kingdom and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I would imagine that there are some of you who are a little bit nervous and a little bit curious uh, to hear me preach. I've been here four years and I haven't preached, right? There must be a reason for that. Um, But I want you to, to feel calm about this because I have three very good examples uh, in the pastoral staff here with me that I have been scrupulously studying. And I'm trying, at least this morning, to take a little bit of what I think is best of each of them as I present to you this morning. So, for example, as you can see, I decided that I should dress like Pastor Andrew. (laughs) We all know he's the best dressed, right? I have taken, I have taken copious notes like Pastor Jim would do. Super detailed. And uh, as for Pastor Tracy, well, I, I'll be uh, singing an excerpt from Hamilton shortly. <laughs> <clears throat> but, <laughs> no, uh, as I was preparing for this over the last few days, Uh, I shared, as you would imagine, many of my thoughts with my uh, wonderful and uh, unfortunately honest wife, Katie. And uh, one of her initial responses was to warn me that some of what I plan on saying this morning in this context is going to come across as a political statement and be viewed through a political lens. Now, while I obviously don't want to offend anybody, I also want to be true to what I think the text is saying. So I was puzzling this out and trying to figure out how to approach this and how best to walk this tightrope. I decided that the very best way to approach it was right here at the outset of the sermon to nail my colors to the mast and show you exactly what my political leaning is. That way nobody reads more into my words than I directly intend them to. So Nathaniel, would you please proudly display my political colors. In the great words of King George III from the movie Hamilton, you'll be back soon, you'll see. You'll remember you belong to me. And if push comes to shove, I will send a fully armed battalion to remind you of my love. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, no. Uh, In all seriousness, though, as a British man, I don't even remotely understand American politics. Nor do I hold an allegiance to any party in particular. To be honest, I still don't really understand what you all were so mad about in the first place. (laughs) Back home, we think King George III was a pretty good dude. (laughs) And while we're talking about it, Why did you have to throw the tea in the harbor? (laughs) You know, any historian among you will tell you that there was actually already fighting taking place before the Declaration of Independence. 
there was not a war because you declared independence. There was a war because of what you did to the T. So hopefully now everybody can see I am not a Republican, I am not a Democrat. I am a monarchist. <laughs> and for the record, okay, if you ever get to the point where you feel like this American experiment has gone a little bit wrong, then I am sure Queen Elizabeth II would be more than happy to welcome you back with open arms. I'll even put in a good word for you. <laughs> okay. Uh, getting back to somewhat close to what the text actually says, we're not there yet, but we're getting closer. Has anybody ever played the old Sonic the Hedgehog games on the Sega Mega Drive? Can I see a hand if you played Sonic the Hedgehog on the Sega Mega Drive? Okay, somebody tell me who the villain is. Who's the villain on the old Sonic the Hedgehog games? I see a hand up right there. Say again. No, not that one. No, the main villain, the big bad guy. Yeah, right here. Dr. Eggman, absolutely. <laughs> Dr. Eggman, yeah, thank you very much. Okay, so in Sonic the Hedgehog, when you're, when you're playing a level on the video game, when you get to the end of the level, each level, you have a showdown with Dr. Eggman before you're allowed to advance to the next level. Before you can move past that level, you have to have a showdown with Dr. Eggman. Well, in the passage that Sharon just read for us this morning, I see a very similar pattern taking place, okay? Uh, up to this point, the gospel has stayed mainly in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. We've seen some Gentiles come to faith. Uh, we've even seen the church start to spread out a little bit, and there's a, a, a burgeoning church in Antioch at this point, but the narrative has been focused in Judea, Samaria, and Jerusalem. But after this text and through the rest of Acts, you're going to see the gospel go out to the nations. But before they can move on to the next level, they have to have a showdown with the ancient uh, king of the Jews, Herod Agrippa, who is, for the purposes of this text, the Dr. Eggman. Before they can graduate from sharing it in Judea and Samaria, first there will be a showdown with the Roman-appointed king of that region. Now, I, uh, I already have kind of in my head, uh, this might seem like a strange example to some of you to compare him to Dr. Eggman, but I already have in my head a connection between Herod and Dr. Eggman. Uh, did anybody ever watch the old uh, Franco Zeffirelli production, Jesus of Nazareth? This is an old one. Okay, I see one or two hands. When I, was a, when I was a child, my father and my mother used to watch this with us uh, for five minutes a night before bed. Every night, we would watch the movie Jesus of Nazareth. And in that movie, Peter Ustinov plays uh, Herod the Great. Now, granted, okay, it's a different Herod, but the association is there, okay? Because I think that Peter Ustinov as Herod the Great looks a little bit like Dr. Eggman. Nathaniel? Come on, tell me you don't see it. Uh, so, so, okay, but this one is not Herod the Great, it's Herod Agrippa. And he's getting antsy because the gospel message is spreading like wildfire in Judea and Samaria. And from his perspective, think about it. What is this message that is preaching that there is a different king in Judea and Samaria 
other than me. He's getting uncomfortable and he's getting antsy. And just like his forebear, Herod the Great, who killed all the baby boys in Jerusalem because he was, tr- uh, in Jerusalem, Bethlehem, because he was trying to get rid of Jesus, right? Uh, he's now thinking, look, if I try and cut the head off the snake and kill the leaders of this new faith, maybe their king and his followers will just quietly disappear. Spoiler alert. The passage ends with the phrase, he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the gospel increased and multiplied. So during the next, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm already running out of time, but during the next 20 minutes or so, uh, I am going to try and show what Herod did to try and destroy the church, how the church responded, and how God reacted to this king who set himself up as a rival to Jesus, God's Messiah. And we're going to see that any earthly power that sets itself up to rival Almighty God will be steamrolled, and the Word of God will increase and multiply. And it's a good thing that that's true, because it's abundantly clear from history that earthly powers will consistently try to set themselves up as rivals to God. So, uh, Nathaniel, if you could put up the next one. Um, We know from historical sources that Herod Agrippa, the main character in this text here, died at around 44 AD. So this gives us a timeline for these events somewhere around the early 40s AD. It's close to 10 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, but the mission up to this point, like I said, has stayed mostly in Judea and Samaria. Um, the gospel has been spreading. People have been getting saved. Uh, miracles are being done. And the early church is generally making quite a lot of noise. Uh, so you would think, seeing as Herod has presumably seen and heard a lot of what has been done, that he would think twice about setting himself up as an opponent to this movement of God. But throughout history and throughout the scriptures, you see human beings and earthly powers and even spiritual powers setting themselves up to oppose God, his word, and his gospel. After all, isn't that the very nature of sin? Adam and Eve ate the fruit so that they might be like God. Satan advised them to because he wanted to be God. The flood happened because humanity threw out God's moral code and invented their own. The Tower of Babel was a testament to humanity's desire to sit on the throne. Uh, Take as another example the passage we read from Exodus earlier. Pharaoh was confronted with God's will and his response was, Who is the Lord that I should listen to him? I will not let his people go. So do you see the pattern? Sin is an attitude of the heart. And what it says to create a God is you have no authority here. I'm in charge now. And out of this heart attitude arises all sorts of wickedness. In the story we're focused on today, Herod Agrippa is a very literal example of this. Jesus has been announced in Judea and Samaria as the king. But Herod does not want to tolerate any rival for that title, even if they are God incarnate. And so he's responding with violence. Uh, Take, for example, the fact that he had James killed with the sword. Uh, This isn't like Stephen, 
where it was impulsive, an act of rage because the religious leaders had heard him say something that they didn't like. He's been arrested and executed on the orders of the king. That's a clear statement that he sees this movement as a threat because they pay their allegiance to a different king. So now that James is out the way, he's going after Peter, uh, hoping, as I said, that this movement will simply dissipate, right? It's the same idea Gamaliel had when he told the Sanhedrin that if this isn't of God, now that Jesus is out the way, the rest of them will scatter. That didn't work too well. Um, So now they're going after the apostles. But underneath the surface, make no mistake about it, this is a showdown between the Roman-appointed king of the region and God's appointed king. I think quite frequently under the surface of many events that we see going on in the world around us, this is the confrontation that is taking place. Some earthly or spiritual power is setting itself up as a rival to God, his word, and his gospel. Kingdom versus kingdom. I'm sure all of you can put examples in your mind of, of this happening that you have seen in the world yourselves. I think of the persecution of believers in other countries, where to this day they're still imprisoned and killed for worshiping Jesus instead of false gods or egotistical dictators. Think of terrorist attacks against churches. Terrorist attacks anywhere for that matter. Think of inequality perpetuated from generation to generation instead of protecting the vulnerable as we are actually called to do. Think of schools and workplaces where everything is permissible but somehow faith in Christ is less and less tolerated. Think of religion courses at secular colleges which are designed to undermine faith in God and undermine faith in his word. Behind all of these examples is an earthly or spiritual power setting itself up against God and his word. This is the pattern of history and it's the pattern of the world that we live in. Now, what I'm saying doesn't mean that the church is always right or that the world is always wrong for that matter. What it means is Jesus is always right and everyone else is always wrong unless they're listening to Jesus. Jesus is the only person we should always listen to, the only one we should always agree with. The reason for that is that this pattern that we're talking about, this is the pattern in our own lives. This is the pattern in our own hearts. Our own sinful choices reflect this. Every time you make a choice that you know the Lord would not want you to make, doesn't that reveal an area of your life where you're saying to God, just in this area right here, I have the authority, not you. This is the pattern of our own lives. And in doing so, we are setting ourselves up as rivals to him. Anybody who's spent any amount of time, any amount of time with a toddler, can tell you that the rejection of all outside authority is a deeply ingrained human response. Uh, Take, as an example, my lovely son, Asher, who is three years old. One of the biggest early parenting challenges we had with him was throwing food. Now, I'm the main cook in my family, and I take it very seriously, okay? I have a whole shelf of recipe books, 
and I take a lot of pride in this. I take a lot of time preparing every meal. I even work in the evening after I'm done so that I can take more time earlier to prepare dinner, okay? I, I might take an hour, an hour and a half longer to prepare this meal. I put it down in front of my son. He takes one bite, one, sometimes not that, and throws it. Sometimes on the floor, sometimes against the walls, sometimes at me. It gets thrown. That's what it gets. And so when this happens, okay, every time he does this, it earns him a clear rebuke. And if he continues, there are consequences. You know, I go by the book. It doesn't make a difference. I remember this one time. This is honestly true. He, he, picked, he picked something up to throw it. I looked at him and I said, don't you dare. He held my gaze, lifted it up into the air, dumped it on the floor. You know what he's saying there? He's saying, you have no authority here. I'm in charge now. I mean, this is, this is what we're doing to God. This is the human response. If there's an area of our lives we do not want to surrender, that's what we do. So, getting back to our narrative, we're going to look a little bit about how the church responds to this. Uh, we see they're being persecuted. James is arrested, swiftly executed. Peter's arrested. The church must have feared the worst. So they turn to prayer, and they're earnestly seeking God's intervention. Meanwhile, Peter is being held in a maximum security prison, chained to the guards and locked up tight with more guards at the door. Uh, note that Peter has not earnestly turned to prayer, at least in this particular moment. He's asleep. Uh, he's always my favorite. He's always my favorite, the way he responds. But you know, God is not asleep. God has seen the arrogance of Herod, and he's heard the desperate prayers of his church, and he has sprung into action. He sends his angel, who wakes Peter, gets him unchained, and walks him out through the open doors and into the street. Uh, up to this point, even Peter doesn't think this is really happening. He assumes that this is a dream. And, you know, it might seem like a far-fetched story. I think sometimes when we're reading Scripture, you know, some of these stories, because we haven't seen it happen in our lives, we can almost feel like, you know, okay, maybe this happened, I'm not sure. But actually, there are examples of this particular event happening in multiple places throughout history. Anybody uh, remember the name Brother Yoon? Brother Yoon? Uh, he was in a maximum security prison in China when this exact thing happened, and he walked right through the front gate of a maximum security prison and out into the street. He, he goes around, he speaks. You can look him up on, on YouTube and other places. And, and even, I, I actually met a guy uh, for whom this, this kind of event had taken place. It was about 12 or 13 years ago. I was working as a missionary, and I was at the, there was a big sending conference. There was about 400 of us or so got together for a week before we went to our various fields. And one of the speakers there was a man who had been flying into a country where the gospel was not allowed to be spread freely. And his luggage was filled with Bibles. Now, after he and his party got off the plane, uh, they were stopped as they were, as they were going through customs or whatever on the other side uh, by military personnel, a, a bunch of them, not just their party. And they were lined up, and the personnel went down the line checking everybody's luggage. Now, this guy is getting closer and closer and closer to them. They've got nowhere to go, and when he opens their luggage, he's going to find that it's full of Bibles. 
So all they can do in the moments before he reaches them is desperately pray. And right before he gets to them, an officer of an obviously much higher rank comes over, says something in another language, points to the missionary and his party, and leads them right out of line. Now, at this moment, they are terrified because they're convinced he knows who they are and what they're doing there, and he's leading them into very deep water. And they remain convinced of this until he leads them right out of the airport and vanishes from sight. All this to say, we worship the same God now that they worshiped then. And he does marvelous things, especially when his people pray. So in Peter's story, the church is together. They're fervently praying for Peter's release when Peter himself is delivered to the door and knocks to be let in. Now, this, this is my favorite part because there's a real sense of irony here, right? They are literally at that moment praying for Peter to be released when he is delivered to the door and their response when the servant girl tells them that he's there is, no, that couldn't be him. It, maybe he's dead and this is his, his spirit that God has sent, or maybe it's an angel that looks like him. It can't be Peter, right? I think Luke is telling this story with a little bit of humor, but I think it makes a very, uh, a very real point, right? How many times have you been in that situation where you've been praying for something and praying for something, and when it happens, you try to explain it away? Like, no, this isn't the answer to my prayers. This could happen, right? This is a thing that happens. We don't actually believe it even when it does happen. Even though God comes through time and time and time again. And so he has to bring it to our door and have it bang for several minutes to get in before we actually believe that our prayers have been answered. Uh, an example of this, e each week before I go to youth group, um, I try and get upstairs a little bit early make sure everything's clean and tidy, and then I spend some time praying. And I pray that students will come closer to Jesus, that they'll come closer to each other, but most of all, that they will come to know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. And this is my habit. There was one week this year, on a Friday afternoon, in the time frame when I would be starting to go upstairs and start to pray, I got a text from a student saying, I want to come to know Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. Can I come and meet with you before youth group to do that? You know what I did? I made the guy take like a, like a pop theology quiz because I'm like, no, no, this can't be happening. I pray for this every week. God hears our prayers and he answers it. I didn't believe it. The church's best defense against those that are setting themselves up against God and against his word is prayer. It's not clever strategy. It's not waging culture wars in our own strength. It's prayer. Now, I will say that there are times that prayers go unanswered, or so it seems to us. And it can baffle us. Uh, take in this text. You can bet that when James was arrested, the church was praying for him too. And he was executed. But Peter was saved. I'm not convinced that there is a satisfactory, satisfactory explanation for that this side of heaven. But notice that even after the execution of James, 
the church's trust in God and commitment to prayer is not shaken. They continue praying all through the night after Peter is arrested, despite seeing James killed shortly before. And by God's wonderful grace, Peter is rescued. So the lesson is that when we see earthly powers setting themselves up to oppose God and his word, that we should pray. Even if you're struggling to believe that your prayer will be answered, pray even if other prayers seem to have gone unheard. Trust in God's goodness, trust in his sovereignty, and pray. Because God does not tolerate rivals for his glory. He hears the prayers of his people, and he is on the throne. Now that brings us neatly to the grisly, unpleasant, and unusual ending to this story. Uh, Herod hears about the guards that were watching Peter and that Peter escaped right past them, and he has them executed. And then temporarily, at least, he moves on to other business. But he's about to discover that his business with the Almighty God, whose authority he challenged, is not yet finished. He's having a dispute with the cities of Tyre and Sidon, and their leaders are trying to appease him. So they go through an intermediary, they depend on him for food, and they need to be in his good books. So he goes there to make a speech, and he dresses himself resplendently, which I think really is an extra jab at them to remind them of his authority. He wants to go there looking like the powerful king that he is. Now in their desire to appease him, they flatter him, and they say that in, in his robes and the elegance of his words, he must be more than a mere mortal. Herod arrogantly soaks in their praise, not knowing that this will be the last time he claims what belongs only to God. Luke tells us that he was immediately struck down, was eaten by worms, and died. Now, look, as with the Peter story, right? I don't know about you, but that feels a little bit unlikely to me, right? We read that and we're like, okay, it's a bit of exaggeration, it's a bit of hyperbole, or maybe it is a religious spin on what was actually a very ordinary event. But Herod's death is actually supported by a first century historian who was a Romano-Jewish historian and was not a believer by the name of Josephus. Regarding this story, he says that Herod had dressed himself up in grandeur and his robes were made of like a shimmering material so that when the light hit them, he glowed and looked almost like a deity. He says uh, that the people did uh, refer to Herod as a god, and he chose not to correct them. And he basked in it. And he also says that in that moment, while Herod was still with them, he was struck with violent stomach pains, taken to his bed, and died in bed five days later. This guy is not a Christian, no allegiance to Christ, but he records these facts as history. So, the, right, what about the eaten by worms part, though, right? That's got to be hyperbole, you know? Just saying, oh, you know, he was buried and, and the worms ate him. Well, maybe that's what it is. But in reading this week, uh, one of the commentaries I read was speculating that there is a known intestinal parasitical worm that causes the same symptoms as the one Josephus describes. So it is very possible uh, that this was the cause of his death and that Luke is being quite literal when he says that Herod was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Maybe it's not, but either way, he's dead. 
<laughs> this is quite a dramatic end for the Roman king who set himself up as a rival to God's king. But note the next words. The word of God increased and multiplied. Luke puts these two phrases together very deliberately to communicate to the reader that Herod had set himself up against God and God's word and that it ended with his death while the kingdom continued to expand. The message is abundantly clear. No earthly or spiritual power will stop God's plans unfolding and his gospel moving forward. This is a crucial thing for us to hear in a world that sometimes feels like it drifts further and further from God and his word. The word of God will increase and multiply. It will not return to him void, and it will accomplish what he sets it out to accomplish. Jesus is the king of kings, and he is on his throne, and he will not be pushed off it. So as I draw to a close here, I want to bring out some clear takeaways that we can use to draw closer to God this very week. Firstly, expect to see earthly powers setting themselves up against God's word. Sometimes it happens in dramatic ways, like uh, persecution and false gods, or it can happen in subtle and insidious ways, but it will happen. Do not despair or be discouraged. This has happened everywhere in every time throughout history. But more important for us is to be watchful of our own hearts and to make sure that it isn't happening in us. Secondly, your very best defense is prayer. The church in Peter's time was surely discouraged that God did not act and deliver the apostle James. That did not stop them praying. They didn't even believe when they got the answer to prayer they'd asked for. They didn't even believe that that had happened. But they kept praying all through the night. And it's no secret that in some ways culture has drifted further and further from God in recent years. Not just here, but in Europe and the UK. But we have responded, rather than with prayer, with fear. Fear of losing influence and power has motivated some of the response of the church in recent years. But let's not respond with fear. Let's respond with prayer. Prayer in all seasons. Prayer in seasons of despair. Prayer in seasons of doubt. Seasons of disbelief. Prayer. Thirdly, Jesus is the King of Kings. The Tower of Babel crumbled. Pharaoh's army was drowned in the Red Sea. The emperor, empires of Assyria and Babylon fell. Nebuchadnezzar was driven insane and spent years eating ox, eating grass like an ox. Uh, Herod Agrippa was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God has increased and multiplied. Any and all earthly powers that set themselves up against his word will go the same way as those who have gone before. And at the appointed time, Satan himself will be cast into the lake of fire. Jesus is the king of kings, and he is on the throne. Remember this when the world seems to oppose God. Remember this when you are driven to your knees in prayer. The word will increase and multiply, and his kingdom will come. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that Jesus died and rose again to save us from our sins. We pray that you'll be here among us by your Holy Spirit and draw each of us to trust in you more 
love you more, and worship you more. In his holy name I pray. Amen.